This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This podcast contains sensitive topics and discussions. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Direct Appeal. Come to find out he was sleeping when I called, so my call woke him up. The character of the trial definitely changed. It became immediately clear the defense was really going for the jugular. So we go into the deliberation room and all of a sudden I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you could just tell they thought he did it. Whereas I felt like Charlie did enough where I should have been found not guilty, I think Jay, Howe, and Mitzi did enough where people should have known I was innocent. The prosecution had three options after trial two ended. They could just drop the whole case. They could try to reach a plea deal, or they could forge ahead for trial three as charged. I was scared to death because I obviously knew I could be convicted because I was convicted after the first trial. This is episode nine, Surprise Witness. Last time we learned that Ryan would be going to a third trial and that there would be a bombshell new witness. But before the next trial, Ryan's lawyers filed a motion asking the judge to acquit Ryan without a third trial. Amy, before I get there, is is this normal? So this is is known as a post-trial motion. Mm. So basically the court may set aside the jury's verdict and allow the defendant to go free. Now, usually this is filed within 14 days of a jury verdict. I'm not sure that his lawyers did it that fast. Right. But... Basically, a motion for judgment of acquittal rests on the claim that the evidence at the trial was just insufficient for a conviction. So the defendant really just argues that no reasonable jury could have possibly found guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So the defendant can be asking the judge to acquit on all charges or just some. I don't think that it's granted very often. Do you remember the Michelle Lodinsky? Mm-hmm. She was convicted of murdering her child. And the crime happened a long time ago. Yes. And I couldn't tell you exactly when. But she wasn't tried till several years uh, after. Gotcha. And so not to say that she did. She served about five or six years in prison, which is obviously too long if you're innocent anytime. But this was the exact issue where the Supreme Court in New Jersey ruled that no jury would have found sufficient evidence. So... But this is very rare, and this was publicized as very rare. So I think we both acknowledge that. So Ryan is still struggling in the courts. And meanwhile, some other struggles were happening in Ryan's personal life during this time. Um, Ryan's mom, Jill, was in and out of treatment centers, hospitals, and psych wards. She was essentially, I hate to say it, but drinking herself to death. You know, the stress, this was, everything came down on her. She was belligerent at some points and even left messages for Certain people sometimes saying Ryan was a murderer or... Oh, this is so sad. This is very sad, actually. She left incoherent messages for people, friends and family. I think that she was possibly suffering from alcohol psychosis. So her and Ryan at this point, are they estranged? They they weren't estranged, but their relationship was seriously strained, mm-hmm. I would say. And they became more estranged as time went on and... There was another revelation that was about to come out that would put sort of or further like this gap or this divide in the relationship. And this was the fact that Ryan was going to be a father. So when he was out in between trials? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And I think that part of the sentiment here was that he was out. 
This is two years after Sarah's death, which is, you know. What do you expect him, never to date again? I think what happened here is that he was going to trial again, and the optics weren't good. Amy, does this have anything to do with his guilt? No, No, but it doesn't. People question his character, perhaps. That's exactly what happened. And I think his mother was probably upset about this as well. She's been his supporter. She's providing money, the home. Like, she's just stressed out. And I think this wasn't a great, (laughs) this was not a great revelation. I'm also wondering if she found out via the media before Ryan told her. I wonder how that all went down. Actually, that's a great point. And I really don't know. But either way, this was not wonderful for their relationship. In July 2010, before they went to the third trial, Ryan's lawyers also filed a document revealing that there was a record of Sarah's medical history that had never come out. And this was documented that she had once been diagnosed with a heart murmur. That's interesting because I recall all previous testimony claimed that she never had a heart condition or any health issues. That's absolutely correct. This came from a dental office where she worked and she was also, I guess, a patient at some point. This was big news because we just haven't seen anything to document any medical issues with Sarah. So this is the first time we're saying, oh, she has a heart murmur. And a heart murmur is part of some of the possible conditions that were suggested by the defense that might account for her not being able to survive in the bathtub. So this was big news. But this development was seriously overshadowed when another bombshell, and I mean bombshell, presented itself. There was a new witness in this case, and this new witness came forward claiming that Ryan confessed to killing Sarah. When we all found out that there was going to be a mystery witness, the entire Cincinnati region that was following this case, people were just abuzz with speculation. People were thinking that, gee, it's probably like a jailhouse snitch, and he probably admitted that he did it. Or maybe it's his mom, you know, maybe she's turned against him and now she's going to come out and say he admitted it to her. But there was no one saying that it was anything in his favor, obviously, because it was a prosecution revelation that they had a, a witness. And it was the timing was very interesting because the Ohio law had just changed so that prosecutors were allowed for safety reasons to conceal the identity of witnesses. Interestingly, as an aside, I kind of knew there were some witnesses to a murder who actually, one of them was killed before he could testify. And I believe that that is the case that led to this new state law. So because of that, Ryan Whitmer's lawyers were not allowed to know who this witness was or know anything about the witness until the trial actually started. So they actually took a recess after they revealed who this witness was. I believe for a couple of days, there was a recess. So it gave them some time then to scramble and do background research. And I do think that that kind of hurt the defense to not have as much time to critically view this witness But with that said, I think that they did amass a fair amount of information about her in a fairly short period of time. Okay, so this is really interesting to me. I understand the reason why they had to protect the identity, but that really places the defense at a serious disadvantage, which also seems unfair to me because, as Janice just said, like, you don't know who this witness is, so all of a sudden you need a recess, you have to scramble, like, you can't prep 
Yeah. That seems unfair. It almost seems like a Brady violation to not tell the defense. And it's Ohio law, so I it's know. not, but I, I understand know. what you're saying. But you're, I'm saying, yeah. You're withholding critical yeah. information. I think this is a serious detriment to the defense. It doesn't give them enough time to, mm-hmm. to vet, to research. Mm-hmm. Usually you have to provide your witness list, and yeah. this gives both sides the opportunity to investigate. So I think this was, I could be wrong, but I think this is going to hurt. Regardless, January 2011 is the trial date it's set. Family and supporters were getting very worried about finances. Remember, this is Ryan's third trial. Mm-hmm. We talked about this earlier. You know how much a criminal defense costs. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars here. And I'm assuming his motion for judgment of acquittal did not get granted. I would imagine with all those new scandals, so to speak, coming out. Right. You're yeah. absolutely right. It, di- it was not granted. Ryan got lucky, though, because a local businessman came forward and offered to cover his attorney fees for trial three. He donated $60,000. Who was he? Anonymous. Oh, wow. I mean, 60000 that was a generous donation, but still doesn't mm-hmm. quite cover, you know. You it know helps. It, yeah. it helps a lot, actually. It offsets a lot of the costs. So who were the lawyers? Well, the defense swapped out Hal for Charlie Rickers Jr. Very interesting. We've covered a case that he was, remember uh, Brooke Schuyler Richardson case we did on women and crime? Brooke Schuyler Richardson was a young Ohio mother who was acquitted of charges that she killed and buried her newborn baby. And she was represented by Charlie Rickers Jr. And I think she did very well in that case. She did very well. And this was national news. So this is kind of a big deal. But also interesting his father was the yeah. his father was Ryan's defense attorney in the first trial and he became passionate about this case and he wanted to help. That's amazing. Yeah, he he was Brooke Schuyler. Has he done either? I think I feel like he's done some other cases that we he's might know. He's done some other higher profile cases in that area. I know that he's very big in Warren County. And actually Warren County, the courtroom that Ryan had his trials and is the same courtroom that Brooke Skyler Richardson had her trial in. Oh, is that right? Well, it's the same county. So yeah. the same courthouse. I don't know if it's the same courtroom, but okay. yeah, no, he's a big deal in that area. Yeah, I think so. Okay. So Charlie Rickers is coming in, stepping in for Hal and also Jason Hillard left the prosecution. You had just like every trial, there's several pretrial motions, but the most critical was the request for a change of venue, which is very rare in Warren County. I think a change of venue is pretty rare in most criminal cases. So it is rare, but there are some high-profile cases. I could think of a couple offhand, super high-profile cases where there was a change of venue. But that's that's my point, that it's only the high-profile cases. In normal, in the average, I yeah. hate to say that, but quote, average criminal trial, you don't get a change of venue. But let's talk about some of these. Yeah, so a change of venue... Uh, may occur to move a jury trial away from the location where the crime occurred. And this is a way to try to get a fair and impartial jury that might not be possible due to widespread publicity in a case. Or sometimes because of the defendant's reputation in a given area. Right. But I mean, I don't really know about this because even if they move the case to a different town or different side of the state, I mean, some extremely high profile federal cases, they'll move to other states. But Either way, when you have a big case, it doesn't matter. Like, for example, when you talk about the O.J. Simpson trial, so they moved, the case was moved from Santa Monica to downtown L.A. But I'm pretty sure people in downtown L.A. were still very well aware of that case. I mean, in that instance, I, I totally agree. And then the Oklahoma City bomber, Timothy McVeigh. Where did they move it? Well, he was actually, his case was transferred from Oklahoma to Denver, Colorado. 
Well, that's because it was a federal case. Okay, everyone knew him, but that's a bigger transfer. That's not like moving it a town away or a couple cities away. I that's, agree. That's countrywide, so that that makes more sense to me. Scott Peterson, but again, it was moved just a few counties away. Scott, everyone knew Scott Peterson yep. there too. I think the whole world knew mm -hmm. him. And the only other one that I can think of a high profile one was the Beltway Snipers. Do you remember them? Two thousand two. John Muhammad? Yep, John Allen Muhammad. Yes. And Lee Boyd Malvo. Right. So their trial was moved over 100 miles away. Okay. But again, it's still, it was such a big case that... I what mean, are you going to do, though? I mean, the change of venue yeah. is probably the right call, but I think yeah. in these big cases, moving it a town away is not going to, it's not going to make much of a difference. But I think moving it across the country might. People are going to feel differently, possibly, if you know, you're know you in D.C. versus in California or something, you know what I mean? And you know what's interesting about this case is usually it's the defense who files a motion for a change of venue. Mm -hmm. But in this case, I believe it was the prosecution. It was the prosecution. I don't know. I think that the prosecution filed it because there was a lot of media. And I think the media and the general sentiment was very supportive of exactly. Ryan. Exactly. So, but that's interesting because you don't usually see that. But I know very Ryan's lawyers wanted to stay local because obviously the public was on Ryan's side. So it's a little different than what we normally see. They were on his side. And I think everyone was like, let's keep it here. And in the end, the change of venue request by the prosecution was denied by the judge and the trial Trial three remained in Warren County. And jury selection for trial three began January 18th of 2011. The prosecution, if you recall, had tried to strike that plea deal with Ryan, but Ryan refused and he said he would not plead guilty to something he didn't do. So they proceeded, and the jurors went and toured the Widmer home again. We talked about this, how they'd done this in the previous trial, and how this was probably helpful to the defense based on some of the witnesses who described. Do you remember the witness who described, like, the logistics did, didn't make sense? And yep. how the injuries, mm -hmm. like, nothing supported this crime scene. But in opening statements by the prosecution on January 26, 2011, the mystery witness was revealed. This mystery witness turned out to be a woman named Jennifer Crew. She lived in Iowa and she had gotten in contact with Ryan Widmer after watching his episode on Dateline NBC. And I think that it just started with a contact maybe through the free Ryan Widmer website. And then they kind of had discussions back and forth on text and emails, I think. Then there were some phone calls. It seemed like they would talk a lot about sports and things. And when I later interviewed Ryan, I got the impression from him that he was just being nice and being friendly and kind of courteous that she was nice enough to contact him during this terrible time of his life and to show support for him and all that. And she maybe had other thoughts <laughs> because she was texting him and texting him and texting him. And finally he kind of pulled away from that. And then after that is when she came out. And, and I do think that, in fact, I know for a fact, I spoke to some of the jurors and it made it look like that he was a philanderer because he's quote unquote, hooking up or contacting these women when older generation didn't realize that the pervasive nature of social media, people contact people they don't know more often now. 
For example, I, I have met people that I only knew on Facebook because I liked their posts and I end up meeting them eventually, you know, whatever. And I, I just think that they, there was a generation gap that younger generation people do tend to use social media and have casual, more frequent conversations with complete strangers that they have never met, right? They've never met them in real life, but they're on social media with them. And older people maybe felt like that it was something else going on here, like that he was trying to pick up chicks, basically. So look, I think Janice makes a good point about social media, but I don't think the optics are good on this. No, but I want to know more about Jennifer Crew. Oh, we're we're getting there. <laughs> okay. Trust me when I say we're getting there. But I think what the point is, like, he met Jennifer Crew and then another female on this website. He's talking to one, he's talking to the other. And I don't think that made him likable. I think that made him look, I think Janice is right. It made him look like, you know, someone who is just meeting women on these websites. It sounds like they were contacting him, though. Yes, they were. Mm. And Ryan, I guess, as Janice describes, is nice and feels obliged. But like I said, it's no indication of innocence or guilt. Let's put it that way. But it just doesn't feel right. And I think with I think she's right with older jurors, that would not sit well, especially like, wow, your wife died and you're you know what I mean? Like you're using this website to like meet women. I think that was the quote perception there. So Jennifer Cruz testimony was definitely the the highlight of this trial. This is the new thing. The prosecution's case was pretty much the same as we went through. It went from January, the end of January, to the beginning of February 2011. But Jennifer Crew brought the new testimony. But during Cross, I have to say, the defense did a very good job of raising doubt. Ryan actually discusses Jennifer Cruz's story, the issues of credibility, and what was revealed during the cross-examination. When I was in prison the first time, I was getting a lot of letters from people I didn't know. And one thing I always tell people that my wife, she was always huge on it, especially after the wedding, making sure there's sending people thank you cards. And I've always considered myself a, a, a good person, so I want to thank people for everything they do. So I would write everybody back that sent me anything. So when I got out and the guy that started the free Ryan Widmer page, uh, his name was Mike Malayman. He set it up so people could contact me directly, the website, sending me emails. So after the first Dateline episode aired, a lot of people contacted me about two or three days and emailed pretty much everybody back. Well, certain people would write back and certain people I'd keep in contact with. Some of them I'm still in contact with to this day. And she was one of them. And we corresponded email on the phone and I just remember there was just a point where that she sent me a picture that I never asked for but sent me a picture and then like a week later sent me another picture and said that wasn't me and I can even remember telling Aaron my brother and he remembers the same thing too it's like why would somebody do that I feel like that's a catfishing yeah I was thinking that right in a very awkward scenario though so I think that's like red flag right there right yeah okay so I gradually slowed and stopped communication with her but along all of the people that I stayed in contact with, anything I could keep on record, like especially emails, I saved because I just knew that what if somebody tries to say something stupid? So she was offering to do fundraisers and stuff and help with them to raise money for my defense because by the time I got to my third trial, I had to file indigency because, like I said, I mean, the money had just run out. We couldn't afford experts again or anything like that. So, but anyhow, so... I stopped communication with her, and then, lo and behold, find out she was this mystery witness claiming I confessed to her. 
she said that I called her one night and I was drunk and I told her that I killed Sarah. And her explanation was that I told her that I punched Sarah in the chest or something like that. Then I passed out and I woke up and she was dead. None of it's true. It's probably my fault for being too nice and too trusting, but she's not the only one I've met over this. Pro I shouldn't say met because I never met her, but I mean that I've come into contact with that I just don't understand how people can think or what their motives are behind what they do. My only guess is she just wanted attention or maybe she wanted something more than I wanted. And maybe when she possibly found out about my son's mother, maybe she got jealous about that and that made her do it. I don't know. There's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> my first question is, was she incentivized at all? Did she have any criminal charges pending? Not pending, but she had several criminal charges in her past mm -hmm. on her rec a prior record. So mm -hmm. she did. She had fraud. Like there was a couple of things. I've sat with this testimony for a while or, or sat with this for a little bit, but you're just hearing it. What do you think? I think it sounds like a woman scorn. Yeah. Who it sounded like she was romantically. She was interested in Ryan romantically. He was not interested in her. She was pissed off. Maybe it, like Ryan said, maybe she had heard that he had a child with another woman and she wanted attention. She was bored. You know what complicates that a little bit, though? I'm just going to throw this wrench at you. She had a fiance <laughs> during the time. Yeah, but that doesn't mean anything. Oh, you mean at during the time she spoke to Ryan? Yeah. Well, I mean, that doesn't mean much. It doesn't. I'm just, but, yeah. it's like not like yeah. it, she was on her own. Yeah. I mean, but yeah. I think she definitely developed some type of affection towards Ryan. And I think she was probably a little scorned. I also think, look, if we're just looking at this practically, the story about him punching Sarah in the chest, there's no injury to support yeah. that. So that story doesn't even make sense. I, I'm also... I keep going back to the fact that she supposedly or she knew about this prior right. to this trial and she just kept her mouth shut. And so why wait? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that I have to say, I think that the defense was able to really strip away the credibility of her story. But it's interesting because I think that Ryan thinks that Janice thinks that. But remember Ryan's cousin, Sean? Yep. He has a different view on her testimony. I absolutely think she hurt Ryan because even though she was. And again, I think there were some things they couldn't talk about about her as well. But she was like, she had been arrested multiple times. I want to say like seven or so times, including like fraud. And, and she was, again, another like factual proven liar. Okay. I think she wanted her 15 minutes of fame. And a lot of the jurors said they didn't believe her and stuff. But what she did was when you looked at Ryan's case before her, you would say, there's just no reasonable, rational explanation of how this could happen. And what she did was she painted a picture of how, like, a scenario. What she did was she gave them a scenario that was, like, a plausible, reasonable, like, okay, yeah, something like that's probably happened before. You know what I mean? Like, she painted, she told a story. Like, the prosecution, they didn't have a story to tell. There was no story. It was just, hey, she's dead. Uh, we don't really have any reason to evidence to say you did it but you must have did it right because she's 24 and people don't die when they're 24 right and what what jennifer crew did was she told a story and even if you didn't believe her story you could say okay probably something like that you know what i mean so yeah i think she hurt him really bad that's a very interesting take one thing i will say is that we've talked about this before 
everyone wants a story. Yes. And if you don't have a story, the jury wants, I understand if I was sitting on a jury, I would want a story also. Right. So I think Sean makes a good point in that she gave them a story. Is her story credible? I don't think so, but we don't know how the jurors felt about this. Okay, so Jennifer Crew, anyway, look at it. She is the witness who comes forward and says Ryan confessed. So this is definitely going to be, I think, damaging in some way. Mm -hmm. Sarah's mother, also, her testimony changed again, which I don't love. I have to say, instead of saying that Ryan and Sarah had arguments, remember in trial two, she said, yes, they did argue. She said that they were very hateful towards each other and use hateful language in front of her. On cross, was the defense able to bring up the fact that during trial one and two, she had a different testimony? I would imagine that they absolutely said, like, this is a little more... And she probably explained it. Well, no, I said they argued, but I didn't include the language. But it seems like her testimony kind of evolved. Well, because she's, she's hearing all of these people that are pointing a finger at Ryan. And she wants answers for her daughter's death. She's convinced herself that Ryan was responsible. I think so, too. I had asked Ryan about this. I think we talked about it in an early episode, but I had asked, like, why do you think her testimony changed so much? And he said the same thing. Look, I wanted the answers. Mm -hmm. She wanted answers. I think she's remembering things differently, being influenced, is my guess, anyway, is why her testimony would have changed. As in the previous two trials, Dr. Lee was the final prosecution again. Again. He insisted that Sarah's death was rightfully labeled a homicide. And then it was the defense turn. So they put on their case from February 7th to the 11th. One of the strongest experts for the defense, arguably, would not be present, though, exactly for trial three. Do you remember Dr. Spitz? Of course. Okay, well, Dr. Spitz swallowed a chicken bone and it perforated his bowel. Oh, boy. I know. That sounds so painful. Sounds terrible. So instead, his testimony would be read through a third party. Hmm. Which can be, could be great or could be disastrous, depending on how it's read and interpreted, right? Well, remember, somebody said that he didn't come across. It was Janice, actually. Oh, it was Janice. Because Charlie and Ryan thought that he was this great witness. And Janice said, well, I don't think he was that relatable. I don't think the jury loved him. They didn't understand him. So maybe he was better off having a third party read his testimony. Yeah, the prosecution wasn't happy, though. They did not want Spitz's te- They said, like, if he if he can't be here, they didn't want his testimony to get in. So they were not thrilled mm-hmm. that they were able to so get So did this. the defense have to pay again? So yeah. the the defense didn't have to pay again, which was good for them because yeah. Spitz was really expensive. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so no. Having his testimony read saved them some money. Yeah. I, wonder what the, I wonder how that came across. I'm not really sure. But the defense also offered testimony to challenge the uh, Jennifer Cruz testimony. One of the things that made people wonder about this lady is why would you wait so long? You know, this trial has been going on now for more than two years and you're holding back on this supposed confession. She said he confessed to murder and that he did it while he was drunk, that he called one night upset and drunk and said, I did it. I did it. I killed Sarah. I did it. Well, what was interesting to me when I reviewed documents later, and I believe that the defense raised some of these during the trial as well, she changed her statement. If someone confesses murder to you, I would tend to think that you would have those words seared in your mind, that they wouldn't change. And there were variations of what was supposedly stated. The other interesting thing was, supposedly after this confessional phone call, Ryan Widmer is on the phone with somebody else within six minutes of that call, and he didn't sound upset to that witness who testified. She also contacted Ryan after hearing about 
his case on Dateline and her situation was different. Unfortunately, uh, I believe it was her brother-in-law or somebody in her, so, someone close to her had a death in the, the family of a newlywed similar. And so she felt a connection because of that tragedy in her own life. So that was how they became friends and started contacting each other. So aside from the contradicting witness testimony that we just heard about, Ryan also recalls that there were some other credibility issues the defense brought up. Well, she she obviously was a drug user, going to methadone clinics and stuff like that. The actual call that she claims happened, occurred, never occurred by my cell phone records, her cell phone records, by the time, when the time she said it happened. Certain things, I remember her saying, well, well number one, her claiming that I punched Sarah in the chest and passed out and, and woke up and she was dead doesn't match anything of what the, like, even though the prosecutors offered no substance to what they think happened. She had no injuries. Sarah had no injuries in, in indicating that I punched her. It was clearly testified to by the police. There was a picture of our garbage can in the bathroom tossed over with, like, the garbage out. And the cops testified to the fact that they did it. Well, she claimed that I did that. So there was a, there was a number of things that she just, I mean, and just the way she was, I mean, just as combative as she was with them, I can specifically remember looking at the jury and seeing them laughing when she was testifying, especially under cross. And that's what I felt, you know, after that, I mean, after she testified, I mean, I really did feel confident. I'm like, there's no way people are going to believe, because it, it's, in a way, it was so dramatic when they brought... I mean, it was it was one of the times I had a hard time not showing emotion, just because I'm sitting at the table with my attorneys and the prosecutor, who was a big guy, comes over and stands, like, right in front of me with his arms behind his back like he was a security guard as they're, like, kind of bringing her in the courtroom. And, like, I just cracked a smile. I'm just thinking, like, this has got to be one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen in my life. And, well, you got to think, too, like... Once she claimed I did this, it was before my second trial. So she waited till before my third trial, and then she claimed that it was because she was afraid of me because I threatened her. Meanwhile, all the email correspondence, text message correspondence that I gave my attorneys, there was no threat whatsoever in that. Her communication with me over email was the last. It was basically her saying she would trust me with my kids or her kids. Stuff, just stuff like that where it was like there was, if she was afraid of me, she was not showing it. She was still reaching out to me and I was not responding to her. We mentioned this earlier, but Ryan had spoken with another woman that mm-hmm. evening who got on the stand and uh, basically said, uh, Ryan was not drunk that night. I spoke with him around the same time. He didn't seem particularly upset. He didn't confess anything. So she countered the Jennifer crew and her credibility was better. But again, that can go either way because it shows that Ryan was talking to another woman. Eh. That's what I'm saying. So the optics are not good again. Oh, he's talking to two women on this night. Even though, remember, they said Jennifer Cruz's record showed that they didn't have that conversation when she said they did. Yeah. But still, yeah, this this could go either way. Dr. Smile testified again, but there was also new testimony from the expert who had been in a previous case, but he's offering new insights here. And that was Dr. Michael Gregory Balco. He uncovered a lot because he specialized in the brain and the heart that Dr. Updegrove only took two slides of Sarah's brain. And the slide he took 
weren't even the parts that you would want to have to look for certain things that happen in the brain. So it was just like a half a half done job he did. Quick generic autopsy instead of actually looking for things that could have happened before. Um and that goes back to the rush to judgment. He also had a case where he testified on the other side of where Dr. Updegrove was. And in this particular case, Dr. Updegrove admitted on the stand that he came to his conclusion because of his conversations with the police officer, which, leading into my case, I think that was a uh, a strong likelihood because Bra- Detective Braley was in the autopsy with Dr. Updegrove. Him being there and him saying things was probably not a good thing. I think this was very strong testimony. So he's a forensic pathologist, Dr. Belko. Um, so he focused on the brain. He de- did a demonstration to show that where Updegrove sampled Sarah's brain, the sampling area would not have revealed any evidence of seizures. And this was key for the investigation. Remember, yeah. Updegrove is saying, no, no, no. But he focused on the wrong part. Yeah. So that's very, very important, yeah. I think, because one of the key questions here was, did she have a seizure or mm-hmm. some other episode? Balco was also the first to bring up that Sarah was born with a cleft palate and possibly had a genetic mutation called long QT syndrome. Have you heard of this, Amy? So I I hadn't heard of it before this case, but of Mm. course, once I got into this case, I started researching it a bit. So it's really a a heart rhythm disorder Mm -hmm. that can cause fast, chaotic heartbeats. Mm -hmm. And it often goes undiagnosed. Right. And people who have this condition may not develop symptoms. Mm -hmm. And when symptoms occur, they can be severe and can include fainting, seizures, and sudden death. Wow. I mean, it's not very common, but it is considered a sudden death syndrome. Remember we talked about those earlier on? So it is considered a type of sudden death syndrome. And from my research, it seems that about one in 7,000 people have this condition. So it's rare, but it happens. Not everyone who has this condition, it doesn't always lead to this life-threatening arrhythmia. Right. For some people, it can result in sudden cardiac death. And some of the characteristics here are cleft palate. Yep, cleft palate is associated. But no, I think the fact that she had history of a heart murmur, Mm -hmm. the fact that she had a cleft palate... She has some that she's the excessive sleepiness. Yeah. In fact, Dr. Hamill, the pathologist we consulted with, also informed us that you can test for some of these conditions. So one thing I think I would have done in this case is I think I would have sent her for what's called channelopathy testing, which is a molecular defect that causes your heart to beat irregularly or to stop beating unexpectedly. Now, commonly in these cases, they can be new mutations where you don't have a family history. They can be people who have a family history and know about it. Or it can be a family history of unexpected deaths, like, you know, I had an uncle who who drowned at the Jersey Shore in like two feet of water. Well, he didn't drown. He had an event in the water. So that's a distinct possibility that I think I would have explored before I made this call. These channelopathies that Marianne said she would have tested for are actually a group of genetic diseases. And Amy, do you know what disease falls into this category? Don't even tell me it's long QT syndrome. Yes, that's absolutely correct. So if this test was performed, it might have offered an explanation for why Sarah lost consciousness, or even if not, it could have ruled it out. It's a possibility here. It's worth looking into. And you know what? Even though Sarah was cremated, there is still genetic material, and this condition can still be tested for. Okay, then what are we waiting for? (laughs) I know, as if it's that easy. So it seems as Dr. Hamill and Dr. Belko are on the same page as far as a possible biological explanation for Sarah's death that should have been tested for. And on that point, the defense rested. Closing arguments began on the 14th and deliberations began on the 15th of February. 
This trial was the longest of the three trials, and Ryan still did not take the stand. I still agree that was a good call in his yep. case. You? Oh, uh, absolutely. Okay. The prosecution, interestingly, requested that the jury consider an alternative to murder here. So they suggested that the jury also consider involuntary manslaughter. So Ryan unintentionally causing the death during an assault. Were they worried here the evidence was too thin to support a murder charge? Because that seems like a worried move. Um, that seems like yeah. a kind of a desperate move to me, no? I definitely think that when you said that, I was kind of, I was surprised because it seemed like they're maybe losing a little confidence. I think so. And they just want to get something. Involuntary manslaughter in Ohio is a third degree felony, mm -hmm. and it's only punishable by nine months to five years. So this looks very different than the murder charge. We're talking about now the difference between what nine months and life. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is a, they're not feeling confident, but did they have reason? The verdict came in pretty quickly. So it was a 12 hour verdict. OK, so that seems more reasonable than what was it? About 30 hours in the last trial, 20 well, hours in the first one. Certainly shorter deliberations, mm -hmm. but was the shorter deliberation time good for Ryan? In the end, Ryan was once again convicted. And it was very interesting to me that his reaction the second time around was very similar. He doubled over, kind of clutching his stomach. His head goes down onto the defense table, burying his face in his hands, crying, shaking his head no protesting his innocence, the same he did as the first time. By this time, also, there was a lot of public sentiment that had kind of turned against Ryan, I think, because the public was suffering from what some people called Widmer fatigue. People were sick of this case. They just wanted it to be over. People were starting to resent Ryan Widmer. They were saying, well, how many, are you just going to keep trying to get the verdict you want? This isn't right. It's a waste of taxpayer money. Just lock him up, throw away the key. It's interesting how that could work against someone. Because you would think if somebody's innocent, then the public would say, yeah, keep trying. But yeah. it's interesting that it had the opposite effect. Yeah. I also thought, are you going to just keep trying till you get the verdict you want? Yeah. If you're the defendant and you want to be acquitted. And on the other side, if you're the prosecution and you want, you know, someone to be found guilty. So, yeah. yeah. The one juror that I had the most extensive interview with told me this. She said it was never an aha moment. Instead, she said, there were a bunch of little things that just didn't add up. For her, the 911 call was a big deal. She didn't like what Ryan Widmer said. She felt like it seemed suspicious. She felt like he should have been more upset. They felt like he should have reacted more strongly when the autopsy photos of his dead wife were shown. And that juror even acknowledged to me, hey, I know that he's now been through this three times, but I still think he should have reacted more strongly. This is so problematic. He should have reacted more strongly when the autopsy photos were shown. He should have. It's, it's, this seems all about his emotion and affect. So there were a lot of comments made about Ryan Widmer's demeanor. And interestingly, in the first trial, I remember people criticizing him for hiding his face and not even being able to look at those photos. They thought that looked like a guilty conscience. And now in trial three, we have another person saying that it looks like a guilty conscience or just a, a cold-hearted person, that he isn't upset visibly to see his deceased wife just cut open on this big screen. It was interesting, too, that 
there was a parallel between something that this juror told me and something that Ryan Wimmer told me. When I asked each of them, what do you think happened in the bathroom? Ryan, you say that you don't know what happened. And this juror, what do you picture? How, how can you account for all of the injuries and non-injuries? And, and she said, you know, I'm not God. I wasn't there. I didn't see what happened. Ryan Woodmer said pretty much the same thing. I'm not God. I don't know what happened. I wasn't there. I thought that was really interesting that Ryan is using the same argument for his innocence that this juror used to describe that she couldn't explain or come up with a specific scenario. This just underscores the importance of having an alternate story. Explaining to the jury, if this isn't how it happened, then how did it happen? I agree. And I think the defense did a decent job of that, but I guess according to this juror, not so. Everyone feels differently about it, you know? It just This just bothers me that highlights how much weight people put on one's affect in the courtroom. Yeah. Isn't that chilling? Yes. Very. So damned if you do, damned if you don't? Yep. We've seen that a lot throughout this case. Yeah. This seems to be a lot of judgment on affect. I also found it chilling at the end, like Ryan and, and this juror using the same logic on, on opposite sides. Something mm-hmm. about that quote gave me chills. Mm-hmm. Okay, moving on. When given the chance to speak, Ryan again said that he would never have hurt Sarah. And he was again sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. Wow. But his fight was far from over. Next time on Direct Appeal. New evidence is discovered that challenges the credibility of the investigation. We'll also learn what's next for Ryan in his appeals process. And we give our final thoughts on Ryan's guilt or innocence. Direct Appeal Season 2 is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga. Editing by Jose Alfonso. And special thanks to Janice Hissel, whose book Submerged was integral to this production. If you have a tip, you can submit through our website or by emailing us at tips at directappealpodcast.com. You can also help us out by following or leaving a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.